1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and
0: welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Adam Toon, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Exeter. His new book, Mind as Metaphor, is just out from Oxford University Press. Folk psychology on a standard reading is the way we attribute contentful mental states to others in order to explain and predict their behavior. For example, saying that John thinks the plant needs water as an inner mental state that explains why he is looking for the watering can. In his new book, Toon argues that this view is incorrect. We do not have mental representations. Instead, while our concept of mind is of an inner world, this inner world is a fiction. What we are really doing is picking out complex patterns of behavior and projecting this inward, Intentionality, meanwhile, resides in public language, not in the mind. Toon also distinguishes his view from Ryle's and Dennett's and argues that while the ascriptions should not be taken literally, their purpose is serious and our practice of ascribing them is indispensable. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Adam Toon. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: This is this is a great, a fu- very fun book actually to read. Um, you know, well written, but also very intriguing. And you know, I can't say I was completely persuaded by mindless metaphor, <laughs> but um, I, I'm kind of willing to be persuaded. And I, I think there's a lot of interesting points that you make uh, during the course of the book. Um, oh, thank you. So before before we get into the details of the book, tell us a bit about yourself. You're um, you're now at Exeter. Um, uh so how did you get into philosophy and how did you come to write this book
2: yeah thank you um well I suppose um uh if I think back to school I was I sort of one of those kids who was interested in 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 pretty much everything across the humanities and, and sciences um but in the UK anyway you're asked to sort of um specialize pick what you know three or four subjects fairly fairly young about 15 or 16 so I ended up doing the um, maths and sciences. And I was, I was lucky enough to, to get a place at university in Cambridge to do maths and physics. Um, and I had a, a, a great time, but I think, um, you know, as I look back on it, I think I could sort of hear friends in the college bar, you know, having, um, sort of big debates about, um, uh, politics or history or big ideas, big books and so on, and st- start to feel it a little bit, a little bit jealous. Um, <laughs> I was missing out on something there, as I saw the this was two years into my degree, so I saw the end of my time looming, um, um, and I suppose also uh, I got a um, I'm slightly depressed at the um, certainly not not the attitude of any of my my teachers and lecturers there, but the the slightly dogmatic attitude you sometimes get around the sciences, which can sort of make you feel as if yeah. You know everything's kind of been found out and other ways of finding out about the world or thinking about it in the past or in religion or what have you are just sort of obviously hopelessly um, irrational or what have you so i think i just just had a, an urge to sort of broaden out a little bit um and and so i i was very lucky that that it's possible at, at um where i was where i was studying to change subjects fairly late on so i was asked to um to and uh, funnily enough, given the, the subject of this book, I was asked to go and write an essay on Descartes. So I sort of, you know, went back to my... Um, it was a gas-fire-heated room, not a stove-heated room. And <laughs> started writing a, a, an essay on Descartes. And I was allowed to change to study history and philosophy of science as a dedicated department, as many of you... Um,
0: yes. Uh-huh.
2: Cambridge, and it was just a wonderful experience. You know, I found myself in that, that final year of the degree learning about everything from sort of, um, you know, ancient uh, astronomy to... Um, renaissance magic traditions and science in the cold war or what have you um and i just just looked, felt like i, I sort of found a home intellectually and um, i suppose the the kind of um the, the lovely combination for me was um on the one hand i was lucky enough to go to, to peter lipton's um lectures that he gave on on causation and laws of nature and so on um and there was something just really wonderful about seeing those concepts that, you know, are, are, are of course, used routinely all the time in the sciences, like causation or laws mm-hmm. of nature, but seeing them, as it were, sort of fall apart or start to look a lot more <laughs> complicated than they'd, they'd seemed. Um, uh, but at the same time, to have this lovely sense that you could contribute, I mean, it's partly because Peter was just such a wonderful teacher, but you felt as if these concepts were difficult, but nevertheless, that in this room together, just by trying to think clearly, by trying to use our imagination to come up with counter examples, you know, what if people threw two pebbles at the milk bottle at the same time? How would we say one had caused it to break or what have you? That You felt if that you were being shown that certain things were um, difficult, were you know taken for granted in a way that perhaps they shouldn't but at the same time given these tools to make progress in thinking about them and taming them, which was uh, and of course you know in the sciences that it might take you an awfully long time and a lot of money to get to that point where you felt like you could make that kind of progress and so there was something very exciting about feeling as if you could you could start to do that in philosophy just with a few of you in a room having a, a conversation um uh, and I think the, the other thing that was really wonderful about it was that uh, alongside that kind of analytic philosophy of science, there was also this sense of the sort of wonderful sweep of the history of science that placed it in its material and social context. So, you know, thinking about whether or not the experimental method, you know, was something that was um, in its current form relatively recent, did it have something to do with the particular social and political circumstances of the 17th century in England or what have you, th- those were just very powerful and interesting ideas to um, uh, to engage with. Um, and I think, in know, in a way, as I reflect on it now, it's really bringing those two strands of interest together that sort of motivates this this book, really, trying to bring together, you know, on the one hand, all of the questions that have traditionally interested philosophers and and in our tradition of epistemology in particular about reasoning and the la- relationship of mind to world and so on um with uh, hopefully a sense of just the the messy complexity of the material and social context in which reasoning and inquiry um happens and um, mm-hmm. and i think you know there's a there's a temptation i mean I include myself in this of um to to listen to all those um, histories about that—that that complexity, about the, you know, the institutions that need setting up, or the material culture of the sciences, and, and so on. But to sort of think, yeah, but we're interested in what goes on in here. And I'm sort of, you know, tapping my <laughs> forehead as I, I say that. You know, that we're we're sort of that's all important. But we're interested in reasoning or concepts or knowledge and all, all the sorts of things that philosophers often concern themselves with. Um, and I suppose. Broadly speaking, what I was interested in doing in the book was trying to think about a conception of mind um, that can do justice to that material and social culture. To say, well, this is what reasoning is. This is what it. This is what it looks like. It's not, as it were, just something that happens in here, as it were, touching my my uh, forehead again. But it's something that um, happens in the world. It changes over time, and and so on.
0: Okay. well, that's you've touched on a number of you know issues that we will return to. I mean you do have a background in, you know, thinking about scientific modeling as well as as well as material culture, as you as you mentioned. Um but this is, you know, mind is metaphor. Um so maybe just to start us off, give us a, you know, very brief, you know, we'll get into details, but a little, you know, brief synopsis of of what the view is.
2: Hmm. Um yeah, I suppose the the view um, starts from this thought that um, we often think about the mind as a, a an inner world um, that um, you know when you look in someone's eyes is it were, you can imagine that that um, somewhere in there there's a there's an inner world that houses their beliefs, their desires, their hopes, their fears, and so on, and that that's that's what the mind is. It's something that we can hopefully get some indication about in the case of of other people by observing their behavior but it's not something that's directly available to us um and it's something that that lies inside and that is the um the the home of their 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 thoughts their mental states perhaps their um their their feelings as well um and i suppose what i wanted to do is to say that um that that view of the the inner world particularly as thoughts as kind of inner representations of the world um i want to say that that's um a, a useful fiction in other words um people don't really have those inner worlds but it's very useful in fact it's indispensable for us at least in our culture to think about them as if they had those inner worlds that housed um their beliefs and desires and so on um and The reason for using the term metaphor is to say, I think that the conception, the concept of mind that we have is a metaphorical projection of the outer world of material culture, of spoken and written language and pictures and so on. I think it's a metaphorical projection of that outer world of material culture inside to create... Um, An imagined inner world of inner sentences, inner pictures, and so on that capture people's um, their thoughts, their beliefs, their intentions, and desire. And as I say, I think we can't um, do without that fiction. But I do think it is a fiction.
0: Okay. So good, good. Um, so one of the one of the things that you know, when I first you know was when I was first reading through was. Um, How restricted is this, right? I mean, it's it's it. um, You know, as I went through, is the 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 idea of mental fictionalism seems to be uh, restricted, right? I mean, it's you know, I think at one point you sort of set aside emotions and and you know more complicated sorts of states. um, but that the the main target here is what's often called folk psychology, or at least the traditional sense of folk psychology, because people have greatly expanded what folk psychology involves. But it's it's the idea. It's you know, folk psychology is the description of propositional attitudes. You know, um, you know, sentences, uh, and that these sentences describe the content of people's mental states, and in a you know, classical, you know, computational model, there's a language of thought, and there are these sentences, and they're captured in our public language. Uh, but the, the main thrust is that thoughts are these, you know, sort of sentences in our, in, in our heads. Um, and that's specifically, I think, what you're targeting here, that idea. Is, is, that, is that correct?
2: Yes, I think that's 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 correct. Yeah, I, I, I suppose that um, view that sometimes known as computationalism I view is a, um, a one of the most recent um, manifestations of a view, um, a, a broader view of representationalism, as it's often called. You know, the thought that as you say propositional attitudes, in particular, or thoughts or inner representations, that um, is often traced back to the early modern period. But but uh, absolutely, as you say, and it's. Um, most recent form, especially since, of course, the, the founding of cognitive sciences in the sixties, um, it, it takes it takes a, the particular form that you mentioned that draws on computationalism, and and of course that view has all sorts of different varieties as well.
0: So, so let me let me so uh, again. I mean, the idea is that we have thoughts, but they're just not propositional attitudes is that would that be right
2: um i'm not sure i'd i'd put it like um quite like that but let let me try to um let me try to so i think that um if the question is simply do we have thoughts or do, do we do we let's put it put it quite straightforwardly or dogmatically do we have minds i think what i'd say is well if by mind you mean an inner world of um uh states with content so states that represent um, the world outside and and are, are caused by the world when in perception for instance and cause to behave in certain ways then I think no we, we don't have have minds in that sense so we don't have um, in a um, sentences of a language of thought or in a pictures and on an a earlier Lockean view or what, or what have you um, Nevertheless, there's a sense in which we we do have minds, which is to say we do have um, uh, genuine patterns in our behavior that are picked out by the metaphor. So, so roughly speaking, I think w- w- when we talk about people's beliefs and desires, we're saying very roughly they behave as if they were guided by an inner representation with this content. Um, the representation doesn't exist, but what we say is true or false depending on the way that person behaves, um, and, and those patterns in their behaviour do do exist. So, so in a sense, asking do people have minds um, is to use a, a a parallel that I you know mention in the book a few times. So it's a little bit like asking, are there angry clouds? <laughs> the the answer is well, yes and no. There aren't there aren't clouds that really are angry or sad or what have you, um, uh, but. Um, there are clouds that are perfectly appropriately picked out by that metaphor, day. and I think the same is true about people and minds. There, are, there are patterns in our behavior that are um, perfectly correctly picked out by using the metaphors that we use, even if the inner states are fictions.
0: Um, okay, so I'm tra- I'm trying to get a fix on what what is and is there. I mean, clearly we're conscious of uh something <laughs> <laughs> you know um and i can sit and you know cogitate without behaving in any way um and the specificity of what's going on in my head will not be captured by my behavior or any pattern of behavior that i might uh express uh unless it's of course writing a sentence um so, I mean, you're not an eliminativist. Does that you're, you're you're a fictionalist. I mean, so I'm trying to tease out what's the difference between an eliminativist and then the view that you are defending. And I mean, you mentioned, you know, the sort of we're picking out genuine patterns in our behavior. There is a background here in terms of, you know, uh, Ryle's, you know, screed against the you know the Cartesian theater, or the, or the uh, the ghosts in the machine, and then of course Dennett's, you know, um, his pat- real patterns thing. So, um, how you know how are you different from an eliminativist, and how are you different from Ryle and Dennett?
2: Okay, yeah, and and I think we should perhaps uh, have the the feeling that I should also come back to um, conscious experience, that you aspect, because you asked yeah. about. The restriction, as it were, am I, am I just talking about thoughts as propositional attitudes? What about other aspects of mind as well? And I have the feeling that that's sort of behind some of the the, the points where you're pushing me as as well. Um, so, um, but yeah, perhaps if I stick to thoughts prop- as you know propositional attitudes and and and, uh, and and try to fill out the view a little bit, as you say, by comparing it to these other other well known positions, um, that that would help, I think. Um, I mean, the one way that I would put it is to say um, that um, that w- what in the first instance what fictionism is opposed to is the idea that our ordinary talk about the mind, as you said, it's often called folk psychology, um, particularly focusing on on attributing beliefs and desires. Um, it, it, fictionism, I think, is opposed to the idea that that's giving a theory of our inner machinery some way. Now. And that's a very common view about, about folk psychology, right? That it's an attempt to describe what's going on in, in our heads. Um, and, and roughly speaking, the um at least the classical form of computationalism that you that you mentioned earlier, um accepts that idea and is fairly optimistic about folk psychology right, that says, well, by and large, with some rounding error and so on, that theory of our inner worlds will—it uh, is true. It will turn out to be vindicated by future cognitive science. We'll find that we we do have beliefs and desires as, as states, um, in a representational states that cause us to behave in certain ways. Um, as I see it, that the limitivist, um, With regard here to to, um, propositional attitudes, has the same starting point as yeah. The way we ought to understand the folk is that they're kind of um, proto-scientific theorists about the inner world. Um, They're they're just much more pessimistic that they think that that vision of the world that the folk um, have, the inner world that the folk have, will turn out to be wrong. So that will it will turn out that our future um, cognitive science um, uh, shows that we don't have beliefs and desires for instance and other other kinds of folk states so so as i see it that representationalism and eliminativism have this common starting point which is just to say folk psychology is a theory of the inner world and that's and that's what i want to to reject i want to say that the folk aren't in the business of theorizing about our inner machinery our inner states and so on. um now now as you say then of course there are um uh, there are other views that that would agree with me there that would say yeah you're, you're quite right that the folk um, aren't offering a, a theory of inner machinery um, and behaviorism and instrumentalism are two two well-known versions of that approach and and some of these approaches are are often thought to to um, not work for various reasons so you know behaviorism is often thought to to run into a lot of a lot of problems, for example um Now I think um so if I focus on Ryle and Dennett, um, I, I think they're both um you know, they're both wonderful thinkers. they're both thinkers who uh, can be hard to to classify according to the sort of easy labels, right So you know Ryle is often re- referred to as a, a behaviorist but um uh, certainly a lot of the central claims of behaviorism like that we can reduce, talk about the mind, talk about behavior, just don't appear in in the concept of mind, for example. Um, so, but but certainly, I mean, as I read him, the, the main difference between my own approach and Ryle's would be roughly this, that Ryle's view seems to be that um, Cartesianism, by which I mean this ghost in the machine idea, the idea of the mind as an inner world, whether material or, or non-material, um, um, is a kind of philosophical mistake. It's something that, um, principally Descartes, but other philosophers, have imposed upon the folk, upon our ordinary language. And it, it's, in Ryle's terms, it's a category mistake. Um, it's a kind of misreading of ordinary language, um, and it's not part and parcel of our ordinary um, folk psychology. The, the main difference that I want to to the main, um Way in which I want to differ from that view is I want to say no. that Cartesianism, this idea of mind as inner world, is part and parcel of ordinary language. Um, that where Cartesianism goes wrong, or where representationalism, for instance, goes wrong, is it, it takes that metaphor too seriously. So it, it the, that the, the view of the mind as an inner world, I think, is is present in ordinary language, but the the key. Um, uh, thing to do is not on the one hand take it too seriously and think we do have that inner world and that's broadly speaking the mistake that Cartesianism makes. On the other hand I think the, the other mistake is to to overlook the fact that 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 conception of mind as inner a world is part and parcel of our concept of mind right um, and I think that's the mistake that um uh, behaviorism in its its usual form, for instance, makes it tries to do away with that notion of inner world while still doing justice to a um, conception mind. And I don't think you can do that. So, so for example, you know, in Ryle, he has this. Um, I love I love the concept of mind. It's one of my favorite uh, books in philosophy. And um, uh, and of course, he gives us all of these extremely rich, um, broadly speaking, dispositional analyses of. Of mental states, and so you know, to say that someone has a particular belief is to say some extraordinarily complex thing about different behaviours they might engage in. Um, And I suppose that um, one way to put the 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 key claim of fictionalism is: um, it's true that our talk about the mind is, um, as it were, dependent on those patterns of behaviour. Really, all it is is a way of picking out those patterns of behaviour. Um, but I think we can only pick them out through this metaphor of mind as inner world. So I think one of the things that metaphors do for us is they enrich our language. They allow us to say things that we couldn't say before we created a certain metaphor. Um, and so for instance, if we think about um, you know, an example I use in the book, Im- imagine, you know, you say about someone that they believe that the number 73 bus goes to Oxford Street, London. Yeah. Um and you know, a dispositional analysis will say, well, we're saying that to pick out this complex disposition in their behaviour. But if you think about all the different sorts of behaviour that could be associated with having that belief, from you know, pointing to a particular spot in the timetable, running after a big red object going down the road, you know, hopping off um, the, that big red object at a certain point, and so on, it's very hard to see what ties. Like, why would I language pick out all of those different forms of behaviour in some way? Um, and the, the fictionalist thought as well, we do it because they're all forms of behavior that, um, they're all ways in which we, that we behave as if we had an inner sentence, right, that had that, um, that claim about the number 73 bus. Those are all ways in which someone who walked around with a little notebook with number 73 bus goes to Oxford Street would be expected to behave. And that it's, it's, that's why we pick out that complex pattern. It's because we're operating with this particular sort of, sort of metaphor. Um, yeah. Okay. Perhaps to move on to Denix, I realize I'm. Um, uh, this has been a long, long answer.
1: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over thirty-five different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, protein-plus, and keto. These are two-minute meals. slash nbn50 to get 50% off um
0: so before we before we get to the Dennett, um i did want to sort of follow up on on what you're saying about ryle so um so yeah so the talk, talk of mine is you know picking out in fact these complex patterns of behavior not not inner states. um um, but then you, you, I think you said something that this is, this is the only way we can in fact refer to these patterns of behavior. Just, so I just, is that, is that correct?
2: Yes, I think so. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, what, why is that?
2: Um, that's a good, a good question. Um, so I say, I mean, I think it, so, so I mean, my grounds for saying it are that some, I, I suppose, roughly speaking that, that. Um, several, but, but folk psychology seems to be indispensable it's, it's extremely hard to imagine what a limitedism that told us to do away with it would account to, uh, I, I do amount to rather um, and that behaviorism was an attempt to translate to talk about the mind to as it were, reduce it to talk about behavior uh, seems to have failed um, and so as I say what, one way to try to, to understand that is to say that that the the metaphors that i would see in the of the mind are and what and sometimes called representation is essential so in other words they can't be given literal paraphrases so they they add some um, expressive um, ability to our language
0: i suppose um well let's let's get to dinner i mean i don't want to um there, there's all kinds of things that i could ask but um uh, yeah. So you had mentioned before real patterns, and that that immediately will will bring up thoughts of Dennett. Um, so yeah, how does your view uh, compare to or relate to Dennett's Dennett's view? Quasi quasi realism, I think, is his preferred term. I don't know if that's your term, but
2: um, yeah. Um, yeah. yes, I, it's funny. I, I um in fact I was kind enough to to, to write a, a paper for a volume I recently edited on mental fictionism and that and it and um I think his title is Am I a Fictionalist? And and the first line sort of says, Well yes and no. I I yeah. know kind of, <laughs> kind of what I kind of what I want to say as well. It's a label he's he's um resisted various times. I think so so I think I'd say that um in my view, the the kind of machinery that I want to bring to in terms of pretense and so on to try to understand fish and that's want to cash cash it out, I think helps to make sense of some of the aspects of Dennett's view that, that people have found problematic. So one aspect, for instance, is um that he said, well, beliefs and desires are are real, um, and yet uh, a Martian who um, didn't have access to the intentional stance, but had a complete physics and so on. Would nevertheless miss certain patterns in um, in the world they're um And again, I'd want to say, well, think again about the the parallel with some claim like um, you know the clouds over Exeter are angry today, which they're they're not quite. But um, uh, now you know again, it seems like well that that claim, even though it involves metaphor, could pick out. Uh, a genuine pattern on the weather over Exeter on a particular day, um, it can be true or false in virtue of um, the way the world is. Um, and it might be something that was missed by some uh, otherwise expert uh, Martian um, meteorologists who didn't have access to our particular set of metaphors. So so I suppose um, one thing I would want to say is that certain aspects of identity that people have thought difficult seem to start to make sense of view i mean another another worry that people have had for instance is that um um sometimes it talks about beliefs and desires as, as um in a, an informational state sometimes just patterns of behavior that they have this kind of dual character and again that's exactly what we'd expect if uh talk about the mind were better or because it's a projection for one domain which is about um representation and patterns uh, and um uh, and information in, in our external representations, it's a projection of that and to make sense of behavior. Having settled with... Oh, sorry, sorry.
0: No, that's... Um, yeah, It's, it's uh, so the angry cloud thing, uh, you know, is a bit confusing to me. I, I do understand it as a, as a metaphor, but um, the claim that the clouds are angry or the cloud is angry... Um, uh, is, a descript- is about the cloud, right? It's not like the cloud is not really going through something that makes us draw a metaphor to, to, to human anger. Um, but you're, you're saying that we're, we're talking about an inner world um, and the propositional attitudes, the content descriptions we give are, are metaphorical. But you're getting rid of the world, and that's uh, the inner world, and and replacing with something else, and that's not what's going on with the angry cloud.
2: Yes, I think um, so. The, the the thought is that if if in the metaphor of the, um, it may maybe that um, compare, you say that parallels with this this particular example don't don't bear pushing too far. But the, the thought is that what what we're doing is we're as it were. We're making sense of people's behaviour when they don't say things out loud, write things down, and so on. We're making sense of their behaviour then through this metaphor by by looking at this parallel, as it were, with the things that do people do when they do write things down. So, for instance, we we talk about memory as if it were a little inner notebook that we have. Uh, what we're doing, well we're saying, well, you can. Um, you can make sense of that person by talking about them as if they had a notebook to hand, where they could write down some information and then look it up later on, use it to guide their their actions. Um, and so, like the cloud, the behaviour and the pattern that they're, they're the behaviour they're engaging in, I think, is perfectly real. Um, but the little in a notebook isn't. The, the, the inner the inner representation isn't. That, that would be one way to. To put it just, just to say with the just to go back to Dennett just to to um make clear perhaps something just to be um clear about the what I think is quite a fundamental difference that perhaps we'll come on to later um I, I think a key as I read him a key difference between the view I want to, to try to put forward in Dennett's is that um I, I do think that the language um introduces something quite different in other words i and I, do, I think that um, as I read that, I think the intentional stance seems to be, as it were, a story um, about um, uh, about represent about intentionality as a whole. Whereas um, what I want to say is, well, in fact, it's uh, what we're doing is projecting public intentionality, especially language, onto the mind. So the the, the view does allow that there's something, as it were. Um, uh, fundamentally different that comes into being with social creatures like us who use language that's then metaphorically projected um, uh, inside and I think that's an, an, an important difference from that.
0: Okay, okay, um, well right, but you, I, I guess like Dennett maybe, I mean for him the intentional stance, um, you know, you can use it for anything, um, it's just mm-hmm. a matter of prediction. Um, An explanation, but um,
2: yes, I think, and
0: it, I think language be, adds, yeah, yeah. and language itself adds something to that. Um, uh, so, so his view is very flattening in that sense, right? Anything you can take the intentional stance towards anything, just as you can take, of course, the the physical stance or the design stance. Um, uh, your view also seems a bit flattening in the sense that maybe any any creature um you know I'm thinking of of non-human animals um, you know we we ascribe you know contents to them as well but we don't think you know we well we I mean I don't know who's we here but, but many many people would agree I think that you um, The sentences that we use to ascribe the contents to their thoughts are not really precise. I mean, we have a particular, you know, we know what the dog wants to go outside, you know, that sort of thing, or he wants to eat or or something, Uh, but but we don't... we'd be reluctant to say, yes, I've actually captured the exact content of my dog's thoughts or my cat's thoughts or whatever. Um, and so, in that sense, when I talk about what's going on in a person, a human's head, it's kind of the same, right? Uh, there's, no, there's no difference there um, as long as you've got su- sufficiently complex patterns of behavior, correct?
2: Yes, I think that's right. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, and as you say, the view is is quite flattening in that respect. I mean, one way to put that would be to say um, it, it thinks that I take the boundaries of the mental to being somewhat blurred, um, and that that follows, I think, from the fact that I'm claiming that that talk is metaphorical, so that the the aptness of metaphors is a matter of degree. Um, and. Um, and so, so for instance, in the case of, um, uh, a dog, for instance, in creature without language, um, if we think about the memory as a notebook example, if I say, well, um, the, you know, the dog remembers where it lives, uh, well, um, what am I saying? I am saying, uh, that it's, it makes sense to treat the, 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 dog as if it had an inner notebook with, uh, it's address dress written down. Well. That metaphor is much less apt than it would be in the case of um other person's language because um, someone who's using a notebook with an address written down, if you ask them where they live, could tell you the address, could read it out. And that's not true of the, the dog's behavior. Nevertheless, there are some ways, some patterns in the dog's behavior, like where the dog will run back to if it's you know, coming back from a walk or, or what have you, um, uh, that are, um, are well captured. By metaphors. So I'd say, well, these these metaphors, although they're based on human practices using language, using representations like like ad inscriptions in notebooks or what happened, you, uh, still they can be apt to a certain degree in talking about um other 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 habits, for instance. That do I don't think is true.
0: Hmm. I mean, I could, pers- you know, it's because there's a whole debate, uh, you know, in the, uh, you know, animal cognition or comparative cognition of, you know, uh, do apes read minds, right? For example, is that they mind the whole, the the deflationary view that no, there's just behavior reading. And so you're saying, no, 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 it's it's all behavior reading. There is no mind reading.
2: Yes, yeah, so I suppose so. I mean, um, I, I mean, I, I should say I'm, I'm, very aware that I'm not, I'm not at all an expert animal uh cognition so so i'm i'm, I'm aware that there are sort very of deep waters here that um um uh, that, that i you know I, I need to be careful but i um i suppose all that, the, the point that i would, would just be concerned to make is to say that um that this is a view that i think allows to the possibility of minds without language um, <laughs> applied to, to animals or, or pre-linguistic and so on and the reason i want to emphasize that is just going back to what i said earlier that that i do think language is very important i do think that our concept of mind as i said is a, a kind of projection of our, our languages um uh, and our representations inwards and and it's quite natural to think that a view like that which privileges language is going to uh, or might tend to rule out say animal cognition and so so i just want Kind of emphasise. I don't think that that conclusion follows it at all. In fact, as you've said, I think it is a, a fairly flat view that sees attribution as happening broadly similar ways in 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 um, all, all of those cases. Um, uh, nevertheless, of course, that you know, and there are there are important differences, and, and that leaves open a huge range of really important um, both uh empirical and conceptual questions about exactly what mental states we want to attribute to different sorts of atoms based on their abilities and so on and i I, you know certainly don't have a a good handle on on that but i I certainly do think the view doesn't rule it out And, and hopefully it makes the attributes accessible you know because because they're based on behavior.
0: right um I mean, there's lots of interesting ways to to pursue that. But let me me get to the question of metaphor. Um, So, you know, my, you know, just my familiarity, such as it is with metaphor from, you know, cognitive psychology, is, you know, there's some sort of a mapping from one, you know, base domain to a target domain. um, And there's supposed to be some sort of, you know, at least on you know, Dedra Gentner's view, for example, there's, there's similarity in the relationships between, you know, components in the base and components in the target. And, you know, similar, the, um, you know, you can use a very flowery sort of metaphor, like, you know, um, you know time is a river or you know love is a journey but also you know in modern science you know you'll get um you know certain models of like the atom as like a solar system and so there's parts of the you know we're familiar with the base domain and we describe the the target domain in ways that are you know can be mapped to the to the elements and relationships of the of the base domain. That's one understanding of metaphor, um, which is not all a fiction, obviously. So, could you say what your view of, you know, when you say mind is metaphor and the view is called mental fictionalism, um, It's uh, what precisely do you mean by that?
2: Yeah. So, so the um the idea so, as you say that, that it seems to be broadly um, well, accepted that it's characteristic metaphor that there's a a, a a movement of terms from one domain that um, typically we, we we understand better or is more accessible to us for some reason, um, to another domain that perhaps we lack ways of talking about it's less accessible. have you been, And exactly as you say, that those uh, moves are familiar in the silences as well as in all sorts of parts of of everyday life. Um, In the case of the mind, I want to say that the two domains are, as it were, the the less well understood domain. The the domain that we're interested in talking about is um, people... And the way that they behave in the first instance, without using external tools, so um, without declaring what they're going to do when they're doing it, for instance, or without writing down some information and then looking it up and so on, just people sort of walking around, you know, without telling us very much about what they're what they're up to. Um, so that's that's the where the, the domain we're interested in trying to make sense. And the thought is that what we do when we invent this concept of mind is we try to make sense of that and um, that kind of behavior with people by looking to this other enormously rich domain which is um, also the movement of people and their behavior but this time it uh, involving talk so writing things down with in, um, in a piece of paper in a notebook and then looking it up later on um, or um, saying out loud I want a cup of coffee and then going to make a cup of coffee that's so the thought well, the the, the realisation that um that we- that motivates the invention of the concept of mind is that a um, realisation that we can treat people um in the first instance when they um, well, don't have access to it, while well, not saying what they want to do out loud, while well, not writing things down and so on, we can nevertheless make sense of them by treating them as if they were writing things down or were saying things out loud. So then they have a desire for a cup of coffee, even when they just walk up to the cat and switch it on without saying, I want a cup of coffee, for instance. Um, acting as if they have um, that um, uh, inner representation helps us to explain why they're reaching in the cupboard and picking out the coffee jar and so on, um, in something like the way it would if um, they were to have told us out loud or what a cup of coffee. So, then, so this, that's the as you say the, the characteristic feature of metaphor is those two domains and I will say both of those domains are taken from human behavior and culture the reason I I think this this you know, this term fiction is is quite unfortunate in in a way it's something that um uh, is something of a term of art in, in various areas I, I've written about fiction in the context of scientific modeling for instance and of course it's always somewhat unfortunate to talk about. A relationship between science and fiction, it can lead people to think you're, uh, a uh, skeptic or a flat earther or what have you. Uh, right. <laughs> in, in this context, um, uh, meant to mean that we um, that when we we look as if we're making assertions about an inner world, um, we don't mean those assertions literally. Just as we wouldn't if we said the clouds are angry, um, uh, and um, or you know. Um, uh, a friend was standing at a crossroads in their life, or what have you. Um, that we're engaged in a kind of a, a minimal form of pretense that's akin to what happens in fiction and children's games, and so on, but nevertheless, we're doing it for a, a serious purpose. Where you know, say someone's standing at a crossroads, we're trying to make a, a genuine assertion about where they find themselves, um, in their lives, faced with a difficult decision, and when we and use this metaphor or this this fiction of in a world where really what we're interested in when we're not doing positive psychology but in everyday life we're interested in behavior what they'll do say and so on
0: okay and so that kind of brings up the question of um intentionality right I mean, because there's a whole I mean uh, you know there's all kinds of uh I mean, the whole explanations in cognitive science, you know, how to naturalize representation and, you know, there's all sorts of um, uh, research programs, I, I guess is the best way to put it, that go on which, um, which if you know, if this is correct, would just be like completely off base. Um, so I, I'm not even I'm not going to go there so much because it's a, it's a whole other discussion. Um, but I do want to get to the issue of intentionality. Um, and you do say in the book that um, you know the intentionality of mental states, uh, such as it is, I suppose. Uh, which it it certainly would the whole meaning of intentionality would be completely different. But um, at least for mental representations, but that public, you know, language, um, that's perfectly fine intentionality in the usual sense. So could, could you explain how your view relates to, uh, the intentionality, the, the meaning, the semantic content of, of language, and then how that, um, how you explain that or, or the so-called intentionality, I suppose, of mental states, as in some sense parasitic upon or derived from the so-called original intentionality in language, public language.
2: Yes. Yeah, so like, well, I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll 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 do my best. So I I think um, I mean as you say that the the view here is. Um, uh, arguably an opinion minority, I mean, a, a t- the, the typical approach that you will find to thinking about intentionality proceeds in, in exactly the opposite direction. So the, the typical approach would be to think, well, um, what, you know, why is it that um, uh, sentences spoken out loud and, you know, disturbances in the air or marks on the paper, why do they have content? Um, well, they, they have content because someone... Um, there was a speaker or a writer, um, and they had certain thoughts. And so the, the you know on the um, at usual view, take it the the um, the intentionality of public representation like language is dependent on the thoughts of those who are using it. And in the representationalist view, um, the way that content ultimately bottoms out is in the um, inner representation that that writer, or speaker, or whatever. And as you say, in, in a way, I want to turn to the direction uh, of explanation the other way around. So um, now, I, I should say that I should just admit at the outset that I don't think that fictionalism in, in itself gives is a, it's a theory of meaning. So I don't think it, um, uh, it it gives a theory of public intentionality, It's not a theory of, of language. But it's still reliant on the, the idea that we could, as it were, acquire language um, without explaining its content in terms of prior inner states. So, so I, 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 it, it's at least important for the fictionist to sketch one version of how that that might go. Um, so, so one one view that I um, it's not not at all mutiny uh, original to me at all is um, but would say, well, um, look, start from the fact that we're social creatures. Who tend to act alike much of the time, and tend to um, discipline in various ways, from you know subtle to more uh, to less subtle. um, Those people who uh, are um, out of line. So we have, in other words, um, communities in which norms arise, certain patterns of behaving that you're supposed to engage in. Um, And one of the things that we do is use tools with all. So. You know, if you think about something like a screwdriver, um, it's um, used in certain norm governed activities. And there's, that means that there's something that it's for. It has a certain function. Um, it's for, um, you know, driving the screws rather than, um, uh, you know, uh, making a hole or, 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 or taking the lid off a paint parcel, what have you. Um, and, and the broad idea that, that's common to many thinkers who have this, this kind of view would be that um, language is a tool in that way. That, that we start to utter sounds and make marks, of, that have a particular role that are for something, for labeling, for instance, uh, and and that really is uh, broadly speaking, what how meaning arises. Um, now, as I say, that that's it's a, a view that you know, is found a very different thing because there's certainly an awful lot that needs to be done to to uh, has been done to sketch that out. I think where. Um, fictionism comes in is to say well look once you have a community that has language that has external um uh, representations um, how would it get the concept of mind and and that I think comes to work afterwards when um that external world of sentences of, of um of the noises and marks with certain um, social roles gets projected metaphorically inside so, so- I think where the fictionalist story comes in, it's how in a community that that already has developed language as a non-government social group, then come up with the concept of mind. Um, But it would be quite right to say that that's, and although there are lots of people who have developed something, about that deal with languages, and perhaps still don't want to present Okay.
0: Okay. I mean, I do want to pursue that, but uh, we but we're we're running low on time, so I do want to get back to the one of the things you said at the very beginning on uh, material culture, and we haven't we haven't really talked about material culture, although just now you're talking about you know language as a tool. Um, uh, can you you know sort of to go back to that that. Um, that aspect of, of, you know, how you even, you know, came to mental f- fictionalism. Um, can you, can you um, say a bit about um, the relationship of this to your your background or original views on material culture?
2: Hmm. Um, yes, it was I, I perhaps quite like a, a lot of these um, roots. It's a little bit torturous, but I'll, but I'll try to, uh, I'll try to, I think, um, as I say, the original interest for me was in thinking: Look, if, if as philosophers, we want to understand and um, scientific knowledge, reasoning, what it can tell us about the world and so on, then we, then we need to take into account what all these wonderful, wonderfully rich historical and sociological stories have told us about that depends the dependence of scientific reasoning on on diagram systems, informing mean, or models, reach simulations, of what have you, and the uh, Particular social institutions are created that are created, like the World society, or having to to govern their end use. Um, and uh, originally, something that we haven't talked about very much, but but many of you readers would be familiar with, of course, is that um, the extended mind thesis and, and similar ideas uh, that that are, are, are ways of trying to say that what's happening externally when someone say. Works through a formula on a on a piece of paper and um, should should count as reasoning. And so a few years ago, um, I, I, what I was trying to do was use some of those views to kicks in mind thesis to talk about scientific reasoning in that way. So we you know to try to say that, for example, the use of the instruments could count as a kind of perception, and that's important for the way we think about empiricism, for instance, or. Um, that understanding in science is very often an extended state that involves interacting with um, formulae and diagrams and so on. Um, but but the extended mind thesis this um, still accepts what we've been calling representationalism. So it, it still accepts the idea that perhaps even in all cases that we find in the real world um, outside of philosophical thought experiments, um, mental states are, are in the head. It, 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 if he claims that under certain, perhaps slightly unusual circumstances, um, uh, and they, they could extend that. Um, and so I suppose that the way I began thinking about you know, fictionism was of trying to give a, a, a different view that could reject that idea of the mind is in a world, but nevertheless explain why it is that we're tempted by it. Um, and the, the result is, as it were, almost the reverse of the extended mind thesis. So the extended mind thesis is a thesis that says, well, sometimes under special circumstances, the mind can spread out to material culture. I wanted to say that, well, in fact, the most foundational move it seems to me, is exactly the opposite way around. It's that we develop material culture and then metaphorically project that inwards to, to create the, the concept of mind. Well, I think... Uh, what that means, if we think about something like the history of material culture and sciences, is that um, is, is a different way of thinking about um, epistemology. That, that if, you know, if we think about um, uh, Locke or Hume or those empiricists who wanted to, to, to talk about the limits of the, the human mind, the way that they do that is by thinking about the mind as an inner world, and of ideas and asking, well, what are its operations and uh, what is its relationship to the world outside? Um, and we get the central problem of lots of uh, foundational problem of lots of Western philosophy uh, to understand that relationship. And I think what I'm trying to say is that, what is it, that the mind itself has a history and that history is the history of the creation of different tools for thinking and the social environments in which they occur, and that by creating those tools, we, we don't have a as it were a fixed inner world that somebody like like humans trying to describe, and we, we have this sort of constantly developing world that allows us to to think and thoughts.
0: Okay. Um well, I think we are we are out of time now, uh, un, unfortunately, because there's a lot of different avenues to pursue there. So, uh, so tell us, you know, just to close, uh, what what are you working on now? Are you are you following this up, or have you turned to something
2: else? Um, I, I'm I'm following it up, uh, or trying to. Um, I think by addressing follows from what I was just saying, and um, by addressing the historical. Uh, aspects of the question so um you know it's at the moment what i've been trying to show is that it is part and parcel of our concept of mind as our folk psychology that we have today that um that we think of the mind as an inner world but that's a metaphor and i'm interested now in asking well uh, when did we get that conception a lot of people that think in a modern period understandably is critical but where did we get that conception that set of metaphors um, and, and what, what purpose do they, can they serve?
0: Excellent. Well, um, thank you very much for a very interesting conversation. Um, mm. I thank appreciate you your taking, her. yeah, thank I appreciate the, taking the time to talk with us at New Books in Philosophy thank and you. good luck with your current projects as well. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye.
2: Bye.